ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, The ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Did 2020's market crash shed a new light on how you view your portfolio risk? CDC, the Victory Shares U.S. Equity Income Enhanced Volatility Weighted ETF, helps investors curb emotional decision-making by investing in large-cap dividend stocks with the ability to systematically shift to cash during times of market duress in a tax-efficient manner. Visit vcm.com slash CDC today to learn more. Carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses before investing. To obtain a prospectus or summary prospectus containing this and other important information, visit vcm.com slash prospectus. Read it carefully before investing. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. This ETF is distributed by Foreside Fund Services, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, one of the hottest areas in ETFs right now is commodities, from broad-based commodity ETFs to oil ETFs, metals, agriculture. The commodity ETF space overall is seeing an enormous spike in investor interest. Now, as always, performance has been a big catalyst here. Commodities have been one of the best places to find returns this year, given everything going on with Russia and Ukraine. Uh, and of course, prior to that, we already had inflation clipping along at 40-year highs, which was driving interest in this space as well. Joining me this week to discuss all of this will be Laura Krigger, Managing Editor of ETF Trends. We're going to take a look at these massive flows into commodity ETFs. We'll talk performance, which has been good, but it's been a, uh, a wild ride here recently, some big swings up and down. I also think there are some interesting stories around products like the Kukrium Wheat ETF and the iPath Crude Oil ETN and some of the other commodity-related products, even Bitcoin Futures ETFs. So Laura and I will get into all of this here in a moment. I'll then be joined by John Mayer, Chief Investment Officer at GlobalX, who, of course, is a pioneer and leader in thematic ETFs. And some of you will certainly recognize John's name. So prior to GlobalX, John ran Merrill Lynch's ETF model portfolio business, which was something like $50 billion. His moves were tracked very closely by the street, but he now oversees GlobalX's ETF model portfolios. And so we're going to visit about that. Uh, I want to get John's thoughts on the current markets right now and how he's viewing everything from uh, Russia and Ukraine to commodities and inflation, uh, the Fed. We'll talk about how investors should be thinking about all of this right now. And then we'll also discuss several GlobalX ETFs, including their uranium ETF, which is getting a lot of run recently, as you might expect. And then to close this week, I'll be joined by Gene Munster, co-founder of Loop Funds, who they're behind the Loop Frontier Tech Index, which powers the Innovator Loop Frontier Tech ETF, ticker symbol L-O-U-P. And I know many people uh, think of defined outcome ETFs when they hear Innovator ETFs. Innovator offers some other unique products as well, including this one. So this should be a, a great conversation. Gene is extremely well known for his work at Piper Jaffray. Uh, he was a research analyst there. I would say best known for covering Apple stock. He then started up Loop a few years ago. They focus on disruptive tech investing. 
So uh, we'll discuss that. We'll spotlight the Frontier Tech Index. I also want to talk valuations and rising rates. I have some questions pertaining to uh, Kathy Wood and ARK Invest. Again, this should be a great conversation. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's kick things off with ETF Trends, Laura Krigger. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected. Laura, thanks for joining me this week. Always a pleasure. So look, coming into this year, I would say commodities were already having a bit of a moment, just given the inflation concerns. And I was looking at returns last year. I mean, the Invesco Commodity ETF, ticker PDBC, which holds everything from energy to metals uh, to agriculture, that was up over 40% in 2021, extremely strong performance. But now with this Russia-Ukraine war, uh, of course, commodities have gone to a whole nother uh, level. That ETF's already up another over 20% this year. Now, I, I think what's noteworthy uh, about all of this is the actual flows into commodity ETFs in 2021 were somewhat muted. Not as much as I would have expected just given the performance, but that has changed in a, uh, a hurry this year. So let's start there on the flow side, and then we'll certainly get into a performance and some of these other stories. Just talk about this rush into commodity ETF so far this year. Sure. So I want to um, step back to what you just said about how inflows uh, last year were a little muted. And, and while that's true from a holistic asset class standpoint, um, they really uh, were two different stories happening last year. So there were, there were a lot of inflows going into broad basket commodities ETFs and specific commodities ETFs. And then there was the gold story. And so whereas these broad basket uh, commodities funds were seeing inflows, gold ETFs like GLD and IAU, uh, they were seeing outflows. And so it sort of balanced out. We've seen that really reverse this year. Uh, We've seen gold inflows start to turn positive, right? So over the past few weeks, we've seen a tremendous upswell in traffic uh, on our site about uh, commodities, Um, flows activity. There's just been... 15 billion, roughly last time I checked yesterday was about 15 billion have gone into commodities ETFs so far year to date. Uh, and we're seeing those flows go in, not just to the, the broad basket commodity ETFs like PDBC, which you mentioned, um, but also the gold ETFs, GLD and IAU. So um, those two funds have uh, brought in together about $6 billion in new net assets this year. Um, DBC and PDPC, those two are kind of sister funds, right? So, so DBC is the broad basket uh, fund that holds a, a collection of, uh, I think it's 10 to 14 um, commodities contracts across the curve, across commodity sectors. And PDBC is basically the same fund except in a different ETF structure so that it doesn't issue a, a tax form called a K-1, and those two have brought in roughly about 3 to $4 billion as well. And we're seeing, um, to kind of round out the top five, another broad basket commodities ETF called uh, FTGC, that's a first trust commodities ETF, that's taken in over $1 billion. And that's another one of these broad basket no K-1 funds. The difference here is that it's active, and so it has more flexibility to short positions and hold commodities ETFs and beyond just uh, like actual ETFs, beyond just the futures contracts and so on. And, of course, we're seeing uh, some action happen in single sector and, uh, or, excuse me, sector and single commodity ETFs, right? So your DBAs, your DBOs, your wheat. And we'll probably talk about those separately, but I do think it's notable that as much action as we're seeing in these broad basket commodity ETFs, um, we're also seeing similar action in these more narrow uh, products. So, and, and that's interesting to me because commodity traders for a long time have used products like this and to try and time various sectors within the commodities market, rotate into the right commodity at the right time, right? 
But given all of the eventfulness going on in the markets, retail investors, uh, financial advisors, uh, you know, other um, categories of investors are starting to try to do this as well. So we're starting to see action happen in um, you know narrower slices as much as we're hap- uh, as we're seeing in the broad basket allocation funds. Yeah, and you know, I mentioned at the top. I think usually when you see a big uptick in flows for a particular area of ETFs, performance is typically a big driver, right? There's a reason money is flowing into these ETFs, and that's certainly the case here. Now, we have a good top-line story as well. I think when you look at commodities overall, uh, certainly in 2021, the inflation story, what was driving a lot of the interest here, this uh, you know demand-driven inflation coming out of the pandemic. But now we have major suppliers of commodities essentially coming offline with uh, with Russia. You think about you know their exports of oil and energy, metals, so on and so forth. Ukraine, who's a a big grain wheat exporter. Um, you know all of this is clearly having an impact. But you, you know you come back to performance. Let, let me give you a few uh, year-to-date performance figures. So. I noted PDBC is up, uh, it's up 22% year to date. Gold, which I do want to talk about that in a little more detail later, but GLD, that's up 7%. Um, USO, the United States Oil Fund, which that was up nearly 60% year to date. It's now up about 35%. It's come back here over the past week or so. The Tucrium Wheat ETF, uh, another interesting story there, which I I have a question for you on, ticker (laughs) WEAT. Uh, that's up nearly 40% year-to-date. It was up 66%. And then I'll give you one other uh, fun one. The IPATH Series B Bloomberg Nickel ETN, ticker JJN, that's up 44%. Believe it or not, it was up nearly 150% at, at one point. So um, I'll just hand this over to you. You can talk about any or, or all of those. I'd also love to hear if there are any other ETFs standing out to you on the uh, performance front. Well, actually, I think the one that I would like to linger on the most is the wheat story because it's 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 kind of the poster child for what's happening in the commodity space right now. So, wheat, uh, W E A T, the Tucrium Fund. There's also D B A, which is a uh, broader uh, agricultural commodities ETF from Invesco. Uh, it doesn't just focus on wheat, but on a bunch of other grains as well. You can't really talk about what's happening in the commodity space without kind of digging into what's happening with wheat, right? So, so as many of me, you know, or many of other people before me have noted, uh, Ukraine and, and Russia together are producing anywhere from a quarter to a third of the world's wheat supply. And now that supply is effectively offline with no indication of when it's going to come back online. So that is the primary driver you know, we had inflation uh, before kind of sending prices higher. Now that this war is on, you know, wheat prices are just shooting through the roof, right? And so folks are looking to access those rising ag prices. They piled into uh, both DBA and wheat. DBA has actually brought in more money year to date, uh, about $571 million, uh, according to the last count, whereas wheat uh, has brought in $248 million. And the difference between these two funds, like I said, DBA is, is kind of a broader, uh, you know, a broader basket that holds soybeans and uh, co- I think it has cocoa futures. It's got all across the agricultural commodities space. We only hold the second, the third, and the December month contracts in wheat futures. It's purely wheat, only the only ETF that allows you to get wheat exposure. And as a result, its performance has been uh, almost triple that of DBAs because it doesn't have that diversity to it. However, that constricted portfolio has caused some issues, uh, which I, I'm sure we're going to talk about a little bit more. Um, and, you know, you brought up USO, which I, I think is kind of an interesting story. I want to uh, touch on that real quick because... What I'm seeing in commodity flows and in commodities uh, performance, uh, ETF performance prices, it's that traders are playing both sides of the oil trade. It's not just USO that's benefiting, right? So USO has brought in uh, $336 million in, in inflows year-to-date as people are trying to ride that higher energy price spike. 
But at the same time, we're also seeing flows going into um, the ultra short, the ProShares ultra short crude oil fund, which is SCO. That's actually taking in more money. So that's taking in 386 million year to date as people are positioning to short the price of oil, expecting it to come back down to reality. So there's a lot of these funds, uh, oil long funds, but um, you know, there's there's people trying to play all different sides of this oil trade right now, rather than just trying to ride it to the moon, so to speak. So. Well, and I think that makes sense. You know, I'm, again, I mentioned the performance of uh, USO, for example. There has been a lot of volatility recently. And, of course, it shot up significantly to start the year, but then pulled back here. And so it makes sense to me that you have traders coming in and trying to play both sides. Um, you mentioned wheat. So W-E-A-T. Let's talk about that. This was a pretty big story last week. The, the, the two-gram wheat ETF suspended share creations which then causes ETF to trade at a fairly significant premium. Uh, as an aside, yesterday we saw the IPATH Pure Beta Crude Oil ETN, ticker OIL, uh, that also <laughs> halted uh, creations. That's a different situation. That's an ETN. I think this gets into uh, the willingness of the bank to to want to hedge the underlying exposure. That's probably a separate story, which would send us down a, a an hour long discussion. <laughs> but but the the weed ETF did get a lot of a lot of headlines. Do you want to just briefly explain what happened here? Because like you said, this holds yeah. futures. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. So so like we said, you know, wheat has wheat prices have gone through the roof. People have been interested in investing in that, and so wheat, which uh, sorry, W E A T, the <laughs> ETF. <laughs> Um, has seen a huge spike of inflows over the past month. Uh, you know, this is a tiny fund that never really saw much in the way of uh, action beyond just commodity traders using it as a hedging instrument. But now it, it just had piles and piles of money coming in. So, you know, like I said before, wheat holds actual grain futures. It holds wheat futures, three specific contracts, and it has to split its portfolio among those three. To hold those futures contracts means that you have to have a specific structure of ETF known as a commodity pool. These are also the structures that issue K1s, by the way. Um, and you need, with a commodity pool, you need approval from the regulators to be able to create new shares. So you get some initial allotment, uh, and, and there's a threshold of shares. And you have to go back to the regulators to, to get approval to issue more. So wheat was seeing so much money coming in that their creations were starting to, to go above that threshold. So they had to suspend uh, creates in order to, you know, okay, guys, cool it. We need to go get some more. Uh, we need to get approval to, to issue some more shares for y'all. Um, and so when funds, when ETFs close to creates, we tend to see some kind of funky things happen with their pricing uh, because the normal creation redemption mechanism that keeps prices in line doesn't work because you can't create shares. So in that time that wheat was is since you know closed, uh, the price of the ETF began to trade at a substantial premium to its underlying net asset value. So it, it's not a great situation when ETFs close and suspend their their um, share creations. It doesn't happen frequently, but whenever there are these sorts of uh, you know, I guess commodities futures ETFs can be sort of not prone to this issue, but uh, it happens a little bit more often in this space than with other ETFs. Okay, so as you go through that, that actually raises a uh, a million dollar question in my mind, or I, I guess a billion dollar question with the flows into these commodity ETFs. You, you know, as you go through that. That situation, to me, harkens back to the United States oil fund, USO, which ran into issues in April of 2020. Um, I'm sure you recall you and I spent a lot of time discussing that on this podcast. Um, but l let me ask you more, I, I guess, of an ETF exis uh, existential question, um, because I saw a, a, an interesting piece last week from uh, Jared Dillion of the Daily Dirt Nap, where he was basically... I'll say questioning whether things like wheat futures should even be wrapped into an ETF. 
And already here, you and I have chatted for, what, 10 minutes. We've mentioned K-1s and needing to create more shares. I brought up this oil ETN uh, that is now halted creations. I I could go on. You you know, do you think we've gone too far with with some of these products? Or are we trying to do too much wrapping commodities into the ETF or ETN structure? I think it's an interesting question you raise. And first, I have to say, you know, I may be a little biased because I got my start in the commodities market as a commodities reporter. So I feel like very, very strong. It's a space that's near and dear to my heart. So um, if you ask me, should commodities be in an ETF wrapper, I'm going to say yes. So, <laughs> but the, the reason I, I think we're seeing some issues is less about the commodities themselves, like the fundamental uh, supply demand picture for grain or oil or all those things. It's more about quirks of the underlying futures markets. So it's important for investors to remember that commodities markets do not behave like equities markets. They are not the same asset class. They're not, they don't function the same. ETFs that hold commodities don't function the same. And as long as you're aware of the particular um, bugaboos of that class and the quirks of investing in commodities. So what does it mean to invest in a futures contract? What is contangle? What is backwardation? What does it mean to um, have a difference between spot prices and futures prices and so on? I think there's there's a real value to having commodities available in an, a convenient, lower-cost, flexible uh, wrapper because there's, you know, the diversification benefit to owning commodities. There's the inflation uh, hedging benefit to owning commodities. Like, these are things that don't necessarily need to be gated off just for commodity traders, right? So I think as long as you go into commodities, into the commodity space with your eyes open and, uh, you know, a willingness to think differently about that allocation than you might with an equities or, or bond uh, ETF, you'll be fine, right? And the, the other element to bring up here, too, is that some of the quirks here that we're running into regarding, you brought up USO, USO two years ago, I think it was, um, ran into that issue with position limits. Uh, so the fund was getting so much money coming in that, uh, you know, the CFTC limits how many contracts any one investor can hold. And so they were they were bumping up against that accountability and that position limit. So they had to change their perspectives and change around which futures contracts they held. That's a futures issue. That's not a commodities issue. That's, that's a futures issue. And that issue exists outside the commodities markets. It exists in currency markets. It exists in Bitcoin markets. It exists in any market that has a futures contract that you can hold, right? So I think, you know, there's education that needs to happen. If you are interested, if you're you're looking into investing in commodities, you have to do a little bit of homework first so that you don't get burned. But as long as you're willing to do that extra credit homework, you'll be okay. And, and there's a lot of uh, products out there that are more investor friendly than ever before. We talked a lot about even on this episode about no K-1 ETF, um, the particular way that they've structured the fund is so that you don't have to get a, a, a laborious tax form out of uh, sync with the normal tax reporting cycle and all that. So n- newer products are, are coming on the market every year. Uh, they're better than they're <laughs> in, in a lot of ways. Um, it, it's an evolution that's ongoing. So um, I, I do think, Stepping back to your original question, I do think that there is a role for commodities in a portfolio and for commodities to be packaged in an ETF. No, I think that's all well said. I, I agree with with most of that. Uh, it's cliche, but I, it does come back to education clearly, right? If you're an investor mm-hmm. who you're going to use these products, you have to understand the nuances here and some of the quirks that can happen in the commodity space. We always say how ETFs have democratized investing, right? They've made um, the, these asset classes and in, investment strategies accessible that previously were not accessible to the average everyday investor. And I, I think that's good overall. Uh, I do have some concerns that 
You may have inexperienced investors who they don't understand things like contango or backwardation, or they may be surprised when they get a K-1 at, at tax time and, and those sorts of things. So there there are challenges here. I'm not sure that I have all the answers that I'm we're, we're going to solve here today. But um, I, I think on the whole, it's positive that these products are available. But uh, again, it comes down to education and whether or not the investor is going to take the initiative to, to, to learn everything they need to understand here. But um, in any event, Laura, just a few minutes left. I, I do want to ask you specifically about gold ETFs, because this is actually an area that avoids some of the headaches we were just talking about. It's a lot more straightforward with physical gold ETFs. And probably more importantly, I think this is an area that a greater number of investors look to as part of a diversified portfolio, right? I, I think a decent number of investors view gold as a core portfolio holding versus something like wheat or, or oil. But yeah. it, it's funny, you joined me towards the end of January, and we actually talked about the Spider Gold shares, ticker GLD, which had taken in a record inflow, like $1.6 billion in a single day. And we talked about how people were getting more nervous uh, about inflation, which was certainly driving interest here. But you actually noted how you wanted to see inflows into products other than GLD. You, you wanted to see inflows into some of the cheaper products out there, which then could suggest longer term investors allocating here versus just traders. And I, I'm just curious, I mean, are you seeing anything different now, especially given that we have this major geopolitical issue out there? Oh, yes. Actually, we are seeing uh, money flow into the cheaper uh, to the cheaper funds like IAU I mentioned at the top has seen um, a substantial inflow of money, uh, about a billion dollars, I think, a little bit over. That's not the same as GLD's five billion, but mm -hmm. it's still, you know, something to be said. I think gold flows. Honestly, you brought up inflation, and so far, especially in February, we saw the narrative just 100% dominated by inflation talk and fears of inflation. How do I position my portfolio for inflation? It's all anybody cared about for weeks, and then Russia invaded Ukraine. So geopolitical, uh, you know, geopolitics have brought a lot of fear into these markets. And whenever fear rises, that tends to be good for gold. And I think it's going to be it's going to continue to be good for gold because even once this war is over, and I, I hope and I pray that it's over soon, um, that once that fear recedes, we're still going to have the inflation issues that we had before, except now even worse because of all the supply stuff, uh, supply crunches that we had been talking about earlier in the in the episode. So that narrative, that that inflation issue is still in place. And so I don't see gold prices dropping anyway, anytime soon. And I don't see gold flows reversing anytime soon either. All right. About a minute left. You know, I have a token Bitcoin question for you. Any quick thoughts on Bitcoin futures ETFs this year, which, you know, I think some investors would certainly toss these into the commodity category. Uh, but you know, in contrast to gold, Bitcoin really hasn't been that uh, store of value, that safe haven that it's been billed as in the past. It, it's actually down about, what, 20 percent year to date. But any, any quick thoughts on uh, Bitcoin futures ETFs? Yeah. I, you know, I think it's interesting that we haven't seen a ton of new money moving into these products. BitO, uh, B-I-T-O, the biggest one that's brought in about 84 million. So that's, I mean, not bad, but it's it's certainly not the billions that it brought in when it first launched. But what I think is interesting is we also haven't seen a whole lot of money moving out, right? The the assets tend to be pretty sticky in these funds, and that's true even though Bitcoin futures and Bitcoin prices have been on Mr. Toad's wild ride for the last few months with prices up and down, and now they're around the 38k mark and. Yet money is not moving out of these funds. So I think there's a lot of true believers <laughs> in <laughs> investing in these funds um, who are not uh, rattled at all by the current state of the Bitcoin market. Well, Laura, excellent insight uh, as always this week. No shortage of, uh, of stories for us to discuss in the commodity space. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. That was Laura Krigger, Managing Editor of ETF Trends. This podcast is supported by iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest. iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainably related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of the progress at iShares.com slash sustainable.
Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risk, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. I'm now joined by John Mayer, Chief Investment Officer at Global X, who currently offers 92 ETFs, over $40 billion in assets. They've seen tremendous growth over the past few years, certainly a leader in the thematic ETF space. And John himself, prior to Global X, he ran Merrill Lynch's ETF model portfolio business where he oversaw nearly $50 billion in ETF strategies. It was, was well known for his uh, portfolio management there, moves very closely tracked on the street. But John's now overseeing Global X's ETF model portfolio business, uh, among other responsibilities, and he's now on the line with me. John, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Nate. I uh, appreciate being on again. Well, you know, I want to actually start with these ETF model portfolios you manage, and we can talk a little bit about the macro backdrop as well. But I'm just curious, what types of portfolios are these? Like, are these broad-based portfolios, thematic-focused, uh, both? Sure. Uh, so when I joined GlobalX about four and a half years ago, I tried to create model portfolios that were consistent with the DNA of GlobalX. And GlobalX has... Uh, probably half of our assets in thematic ETFs, uh, things like cloud computing and lithium and battery technology and cybersecurity, to name a few. We also have a, a, a significant portion of our assets uh, in equity income, alternative sources of income. So the first mm -hmm. two portfolios I created when I joined GlobalX, uh, one was a thematic portfolio, thematic disruptors, uh, and one was an equity income. Uh, shortly after arriving, we were asked by uh, one of the platforms that we currently um, have our portfolios on to create asset allocation models. Uh, so what we did was try to think a little bit outside of the box uh, for the asset allocation models. While they are your typical 60-40 portfolios, of overweight or underweight uh, equities and fixed income based on current market conditions, what we do include in most of the portfolios that we do manage is thematics varying um, exposures of thematics really based on risk profile of a particular client. So obviously conservative uh, investors can have a very different um, allocation to thematics than would be an aggressive investor. But I, w I would say at the core uh, not that, uh, is the, or the differentiator and what we call conversational alpha um, is uh, a component of thematic, including include included in a broad asset allocation. And just out of curiosity, how do advisors access these models? Sure, they're, they're, they're on various different platforms. We're on about 12 different platforms in the U.S. Uh, we're on in the InvestNet platform, uh, TD Model Marketplace, um, Orion, uh, GeoWealth, uh, Interactive Advisors, Interactive Brokers, the list goes on. So they're uh, on about 12 platforms in the U.S., and we do distribute outside the U.S. as well. Okay, so as I mentioned, given that you do manage these model portfolios and uh, given the current macro backdrop, I'd love to get your thoughts on the markets right now. I mean, you look, we, we obviously have this Russia-Ukraine war. We have commodity prices skyrocketing, uh, broader measures of inflation at 40-year highs, the threat of rising interest rates and the, the Fed uh, draining liquidity. Uh, obviously, we're still dealing with, with hopefully the tail end of a pandemic. Uh, but you look overall, there is a lot on investors' plates right now. H how are you approaching all this from a portfolio management perspective? Because I would say the environment we're in now definitely feels different than the, the past several years. 
Yeah, we there's a lot, a lot going <laughs> on, uh, to say the least. And obviously, how concerned are we with the Russia-Ukraine situation? Um, for, first of all, let me mention, I was actually a, a Peace Corps volunteer in Ukraine uh, in 1995 and 1996, dating myself a little bit here. Uh, but, you know, I lived in a town called Lutsk, which is on the, the western part of the country. Um, actually, um, it was partially bombed. I believe some of the airfields recently, uh, which was very sad. Um, and the, the people there, um, they are great. They love being an independent state. And I was, I moved there. I lived there shortly after they became independent from the Soviet Union, former Soviet, Soviet Union. Um, very nationalistic people. So very sad situation. Uh, we all know that. Uh, but I do have some experience of living there, uh, which makes it particularly sad for me. Uh, no, but obviously for the, very sad for the people who live there. Now, bringing it more to a broader context of, uh, you know, from a corporate profit perspective, the S&P 500 direct sales exposure to Russia is small. It's like 0.1%. So the direct impact on American companies, top and bottom line, is, 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 is pretty minimal. But there, there's an indirect implication, uh, which is more pronounced, given how connected the U.S. is to Europe. So disruptions from this war and higher energy prices, even though they have pulled back a bit, could result significantly uh, to dampen Europe's growth outlook and, and weighing on, on corporate profits. Uh, lower demand from European consumers could could really impact American profits. Uh, Europe contributes about 14.5% of S&P 500 revenues uh, in, in 2021. So while from a energy perspective, uh, I think Europe is okay uh, as we're nearing the, the end of winter. Um, so I don't ex- expect to see any sort of energy rationing, uh, at least in the near term for, for, for this year. But putting this all into perspective, aside from commodities, you know, Russia doesn't play much of a role in the global economy. And the U.S. doesn't rely on Russia for components and supply chains like it does with China. Although there is a component of you know, some of the natural resources, uh, palladium and aluminum and, and wheat, uh, could contribute to inflationary pressures throughout um, the economy. And this is somewhat of a positive in a sea of not-so-positive, it seems as if China is going to remain neutral in this war, even though Russia has asked for some assistance. Um, I think China has a lot to lose um, if they enter in, in any sort of way uh, with respect to sanctions and whatnot. So, but then there's the Fed, and how does the, the Fed thread the needle through all of this? Yeah. We know that we're in a high inflationary environment, and the Fed will likely stick to a slow and steady path for rate hikes. Uh, we'll, we'll find out pretty soon um, with respect to what the Fed is going to do. But uh, they've been pretty explicit. Uh, Jay Powell uh, has been very transparent announcing that the Fed will, will rate, uh, hike rates by 25 basis points in March. And I believe they will continue to rise rates because they have to fight inflation. So you're likely will get five to seven hikes this year, depending on the impact and the length of the this conflict, and, and the Fed does have to kind of thread that needle. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in terms of inflation, I think the word transitory is, is kind of no longer relevant. Uh, it's something more permanent and more elevated. Um, and also you have China uh, bringing to light that COVID's not over yet. They shut down the Shenzhen, Shenzhen province, which obviously impacts different suppliers, um, and I think it's likely that you'll see inflation at elevated levels, although uh, the wholesale prices came in a little better than expected today, and the market is, is reacting somewhat positively. Um, so in light of all this, um, you, you have different areas in, in terms of where to focus on, um, and I think energy is a place to focus on, uh, even though energy prices have come off. Um, I think uh, portfolios have been under-allocated to energy for the longest of times. Um, so I think energy exposure uh, certainly should be in a, in a portfolio. Um, I, I think a continued focus on companies that have been affected in navigate, navigating um, supply chains that have been disrupted by the pandemic 
um, owing to just a, a large amount of demand that's that's going on in the economy. And all the, all, and then there's income. Uh, income is an area that um, is, is challenging because in a rising rate environment, obviously the price of your bonds, the value is going down when, when the long rates are rising. Um, so there are certain areas uh, that we can talk about that make sense from an equity income standpoint where you can get some higher income, but um, not necessarily be exposed to the impact of higher interest rates moving higher and the impact of pricing on your on your investment. So, John, that was a fantastic summary. A, a lot there. Let me hit a couple of high points just to make sure you know I'm tracking here. So it does sound like you're of the belief inflation is more permanent now. We can get rid of the transitory <laughs> label. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned that you, you do think the Fed is going to be fairly aggressive here, if, if I heard you correctly, because one of the, the things that I've talked a lot on the podcast about here this year is whether or not the Fed is really going to follow through here with, with raising rates and running off their balance sheet. Because if we look, of course, over the past what we could probably say 15 years now, it seems like the Fed has erred on the side of cautiousness or, or, or dovishness. Um, but I, I agree. I mean, they're going to have to thread the needle here. They're in a tricky spot, but it sounds like you think they are going to be aggressive. And then the, the other thing I want to j- just confirm here, it sounds like with a Russia-Ukraine situation, I've also talked about how geopolitics, you know, that, that tends to have a shorter term impact on the market, not something that you know, hangs with us for a long period of time. It sounds like you agree with that. But um, is all that correct? And in particular, the Fed, I mean, you think the Fed is going to follow through here? I, I think that I think you're right with respect to this Fed. Well, there's just like this dovishness about them. Um, but if you think about the situation we're in, transitory is just off the table. Um, mm-hmm. The Fed is, is, is knocked it out of its lexicon. Then you have elevated energy prices which are just a significant driver of higher consumer prices. Um, and then you have this war and the sanctions on Russia, and uh, that inevitably will cause ener- energy, energy prices to stay elevated. So what choice does the Fed really have? Uh, they have to raise rates. Um, as dovish as their DNA really may be, I think they have no choice but to raise rates. So, so then if that's- have to be pretty careful. Yeah. And so if that's the case, coming back to the fixed income side of the portfolio, which you mentioned, and, and look, I know this is a topic that's been well trodden, right? The death of the 60-40 portfolio. But do you think investors should be considering alternative solutions here on the on the 40? Well, you know, I'm not going to say it's dead because it's it, it'll come back to life in some way, shape or form. And it all depends on kind of where you're positioned on your fixed income portion of your portfolio. So, uh, obviously, if you're shorter duration, uh, you're less sensitive to movements in interest rates. But that means you're just not getting any sort of income. So, uh, you know, as we transition into this higher interest rate environment, you know, investors really need to be more selective in, in how they're positioning their fixed income portion of the portfolio. And you know, again, you know, long duration assets negatively impacted by the prospect of higher interest rates. You know, that, that's well known. And persistent inflation is certainly going to kind of play into that. And it's all becomes a challenging environment. And so, so what do you do? Uh, and there are options out there for alternative sources of income, um, covered called strategies. Uh, you know, we have a few products that, uh, you know, covered call, you know, essentially perform best when the markets are range bound. And the way it works is that a fund writes or sells call options on a specific index, whether it be the NASDAQ, the S&P, uh, the Russell 2, and the income from selling the option is paid out to investors in the form of yield. And investors have uh, most of the exposure to the downside because as the calls expire, worthless is in a down market. And they've capped their exposure on the upside as the underlying can be called away. So um, that that's an option. Um, you, you're able to get a, a pretty good, very good income, um, but you aren't mitigating your downside. Um, and then... There's MLPs uh, with energy prices expected to remain elevated uh, until you see more of a a supply and demand can get into kind of a more better balance. Uh, MLPs and the energy sector are an area that uh, may make sense and can certainly provide a good amount of income. 
John, as investors look to position their portfolios, and you started off with this, obviously thematic ETFs can play a role. And we're, we're running a little short on time here. Let, let me do this. I want to just offer a grab bag of Global X thematic ETFs, and perhaps you can pick you know, one of these to, to spotlight in particular. So the ones that have stood out to me here recently um, are certainly the Global X Uranium ETF ticker URA. This has really seen an uptick in investor interest recently. I'm showing nearly 500 million in inflows just this year. The ETF overall is approaching $2 billion in assets. And you know, I think for a lot of people, they've seen uranium in the news quite a bit here recently. Another ETF that stood out to me is the uh, Global X Cybersecurity ETF. Great ticker symbol, BUG, B-U-G. <laughs> Again, I think just with everything going on uh, with Russia and Ukraine, and I think cybersecurity is, is, is at the forefront. But that's an interesting area just because the tech space overall has been challenged over the past year or so. So I, I think it's interesting to think about how cybersecurity uh, you know, fits in relative to the broader tech space in terms of performance. And then I'll, I'll just throw out two more here real quick. The Global X Copper Miners ETF, ticker COPX. That ETF has nearly $2 billion in it. I'm showing up about 11% year to date. And then another interesting one is the most recent launch from Global X, the Disruptive Materials ETF, ticker DMAT, D-M-A-T. Uh, this ETF holds companies involved in mining and producing rare earths, uh, nickel, palladium, platinum. Again, I would say another area currently in the, uh, the headlines. Again, do you want to maybe just pick one of those and, and speak to it? Sure. Um, Cybersecurity, let's, let's take that, particularly in light of what's going on uh, with this war. Uh, I, I think it's it's well understood that both uh, governments as well as individuals and companies are underprotected in the cybersecurity space. And the spending by companies on cybersecurity is, is way too low, and you're going to see that ramp up. Um, there's foreign actors in many different companies kind of hiding within the with, within the cyber world, waiting to act. Um, and I think uh, we need to be much better protected. And I, I expect uh, increased spending in this area. Um, cybersecurity, the cybersecurity theme, while down for the year, in aggregate is down much less than some of the other uh, more tech-related themes. So cybersecurity, ticker BUG, uh, concentrated exposure into cybersecurity plays right in, well into what's going on with particularly this this war um, and um, something that you'll be hearing a lot more about, I think, going forward. Okay, John, one minute left. Listeners know I have to ask you about one other Global X ETF, which you'll laugh, the Global X Blockchain and Bitcoin Strategy ETF, ticker <laughs> symbol BITS. I thought this was a, a very innovative approach to the market. So uh, this is 50% Bitcoin futures. 50% in the Global X blockchain ETF, ticker BKCH. And you can talk about the ETF if you want, but what I'm curious about is someone who constructs model portfolios. How do you view Bitcoin and, and even Bitcoin miners, those sorts of things in a portfolio? Yeah, so, you know, we have exposure to, um, in a lot of portfolios, um, blockchain technologies, some exposure to blockchain technology through our Finex ETF, F-I-N-X. Uh, I believe that over time you'll see even more blockchain companies fall into our financial technology ETF. Now, with respect to how to use uh, Bitcoin or blockchain within a portfolio, it's it's evolving. Um, there, there's no doubt um, that uh, there's a certain amount of volatility you need to accept when owning blockchain companies, as well as other cryptocurrencies, whether it be Bitcoin or Ethereum or some of the many other altcoins. Um, I do think that the technology, the blockchain technology, is indisputable um, and will be making it, its way into our everyday. Uh, but with respect to certain types of portfolios, um, it, 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 the question becomes how much volatility do you want to add into the portfolio? And it does appear that uh, cryptocurrencies are acting much more like a risk asset than they have in their first, say, 10, 12 years of their existence. Um, so understanding that they are a risk asset, uh, they are suited for certain types of portfolios and certain levels of exposure. But it's evolving, um, and we're still evaluating the proper amount of exposure in a portfolio, not included directly in the portfolios I manage right now. Um, but that potentially could change in the future. 
Well, John, we're going to have to leave it there. Really enjoy the conversation this week. Certainly appreciate your time. Thank you for joining me. Thanks a lot for having me. Look forward to next time. That was John Mayer, Chief Investment Officer at Global X. The most successful companies don't improve an industry. They invent one. Ride the Moonshot ETF from Direction. These are 50 U.S. companies with potential for significant and disruptive impact in biotech, nanotech, space exploration, and more. The Moonshot Innovators ETF from Direction. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus at Direction.com. Read carefully. I'm now joined by Gene Munster, co-founder of Loop Funds. He's behind the Loop Frontier Tech Index, which powers the innovator Loop Frontier Tech ETF. Ticker symbol is appropriately Loop, L-O-U-P. And if you're not familiar with Gene, he has been widely regarded as one of the top analysts in tech. So he was previously a research analyst at Piper Jaffray for 21 years prior to launching Loop Funds. And now with Loop, He invests both publicly and privately with a focus on disruptive companies. Companies believe to change the way we all will experience the world in the future. So think artificial intelligence, augmented reality, virtual reality, blockchain and crypto, robotics, automation. Again, the focus is really around major technological shifts. And Gene is now joining me from Minnesota. Gene, it's a pleasure. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Nate. So, so look, Gene, before we get to the index, I would love to have you talk more about your uh, background. I'm sure some investors will certainly recall your coverage of Apple. Uh, you were pretty well known for that, made some bullish calls on that stock. I saw you were selected as a top stock picker from Forbes, uh, the best on the street from the Wall Street Journal, among uh, numerous other accolades. Uh, did you cover tech your entire time at Piper Jaffray? I did, yes, from the beginning. I remember I had an opportunity to uh, cover restaurants as a junior analyst or jump into tech. This is in the mid-90s. My brother, Jim, was a big uh, computer guy, programmer. We always talked tech growing up, and I thought, hey, he's one of my heroes. I'm going to learn a little bit about tech. And I remember when I first started, I didn't know anything really about tech. Uh, For those of you who know, 1995, I wasn't even sure what a Pentium chip was. (laughs) That was Intel's processor back in the time. I remember my uh, boss, who was an incredible mentor of mine, asked me to get a Pentium. I wasn't sure what that was. Uh, so it was. Uh, that's correct. It's always been tech. We've always uh, orbited around, as you said, kind of anchoring where the world is going and which companies are powering that change. And we've uh, had uh, the, the good fortune of uh, covering companies that have started out small and become uh, much bigger. So, uh, you know, other pieces just about me, if you're curious, Nate, um, I'm 50 years old. Um, I've spent uh, time uh, right now in Minnesota, been on both coasts, and in my free time, I'm a lumberjack. Interesting. (laughs) Hey, that makes sense in Minnesota, right? Right on, yeah. We got a lot of good oaks out here. Well, you started alluding to this, but give us some more background on Loop Funds. Like, why did you start the firm? I mentioned the focus on disruptive tech. Maybe expand on that. What types of deals are you currently looking at? Well, we I started it because the two other founding partners, Doug and Andrew, were next level. Doug is one of the smartest people that I know, and ultimately, uh, along with Andrew, and I knew that if we wanted to do this and do it right, this is my one opportunity. And so... At a later stage in life, I made the jump. We started Loop and investing, as you mentioned, both in public and private companies. So our first fund was predominantly on private companies. Uh, we have a hybrid fund and we have the ETF. And I think one piece that that really enables us is to see the whole value chain around tech, not only just the public companies that get, uh, I think, more attention, but also the private companies as well. When we think about where our violin concerto is, as one of our investors described it, what our sweet spot is, it's making that identification, as I said, where the world is going, how our behavior is going to change, 
And in order to really identify that, it's best to know some of the smallest companies all the way up to the largest tech companies. Even though we're not investing in those mega-cap companies, they're companies that we know very well from our time uh, researching tech. And uh, having an understanding what those big companies need, how they're growing their business, where they're investing, it really helps inform our entire spectrum of uh, both public and private investing. And so uh, that's really what is unique to what we're doing is this uh, from very small to large companies. And at the end of the day, we're just trying to find great companies uh, that are changing the world. And uh, we really look for those both in the public and private space. Okay, so with that backdrop, let's talk about the Loop Frontier Tech Index. So you and your team select the stocks that comprise this index, which, again, this powers the Innovator Loop Frontier Tech ETF, ticker symbol L-O-U-P. I I guess I should ask you first, how did you end up partnering with Innovator on this? Well, uh, Innovator uh, did not need any introduction from our end. Uh, Of course, we knew uh, before we started Loop about Bruce Bond, uh, who founded Innovator, and in my view, he's really the kind of the, the godfather of ETFs. Uh, so we thought if we're going to do this and do it right, uh, we need a partner who has, uh, who knows how to do this. And so that's how we ended up with Innovator. They've been a great partner and uh, can't say enough good things about them. Okay, so take us through the strategy here. How is this index put together? So as I mentioned, it starts with a view of where the world is going. And I think it also is anchored in a belief that that view where the world is going is not dependent on a single vertical. It's not a single theme. And when we think about how Loop is constructed versus other ETFs, other ETFs tend to focus on, as I mentioned, a given theme. It might be crypto. It might be uh, the metaverse. It may be AI, uh, maybe EVs. But when we think about uh, Loop, it really is uh, finding frontier tech. So our job is to identify which are the most exciting areas of growth and which one, two, three, four, five companies are really um, addressing that opportunity. We also uh, have a belief, a long belief, that if, and when it comes to tech, if you're not growing, you're dying. And uh, that, as we think about the specific uh, companies that go in there, we uh, weight them relative to revenue growth. That's the most important uh, factor. We also look at earnings. We can talk more about that that piece to it. But as we think about the universe of 50 companies that we look at and then the 30 that ultimately make it into the index, it is structured and kind of anchored around uh, that growth piece to it. And so I think that's one uh, differentiating piece uh, from our view. Gene, one thing I'm curious about here that that I'd love to get your take on is just the longer-term investment thesis for an ETF like this. And and let me give you some some background here. I always say I think most people understand that things like artificial intelligence and uh, automation, electric vehicles, virtual reality, all of those are obviously going to play huge roles in our lives moving forward. That said, that, that doesn't necessarily make them good investments, right? I think if everyone already knows these areas will be important, perhaps that's already baked into the cake. It's, it's baked into valuations or whatever. So, so how do you view the longer-term investment thesis for the holdings uh, in, in this index? Well, the, the other piece that we layer on that I mentioned on the earning side, and so we don't believe that just because a company is addressing a given exciting theme that it should be invested in. Yeah, there is a, a fair price, as we internally talk about it. And I think that that's something that largely gets uh, missed with a lot of the thematic investing that goes on. And I think you have seen um, some of the, the impact of the performance of those companies that have been just purely uh, uh, thematic-based. And so I think that is uh, an important distinction. If you're going to look at kind of that from a metric standpoint, Luke's ETF trades at around 21 times next year's earnings. Uh, the Q's trade at around 25x. I think uh, ARC trades at around 35x, 37x, something like that. And so we're, uh, we definitely uh, uh, have that piece as our long-term, uh, one of our long-term anchors. And uh, so it, it is a combination of the growth piece and earnings. And I would just say one more on the long-term. It's the reason I can sleep well at night uh, because a lot of the near-term uh, piece, this is just, it's been really choppy, and I think we're still not through all of the, I think, a lot of the headwinds. But ultimately, I think that if 
uh, history repeats itself, which I do believe it will be the case in tech, is I think that investors will uh, come back and embrace growth and embrace tech because it ultimately, is, as you mentioned, it's the world, where the world is going, and there's a craving that uh, uh, always seems to find its way back to the top of the investing uh, themes around finding that growth. Regarding valuations, you know, you're in a, a very unique position in that you do invest in both private and public companies. And I, I'd love to hear more about what you think about valuations between private and public in tech right now. I'm not sure if you saw this, but ARC's Kathy Wood, she made some comments recently, and I, I want to read these for you. She said, uh, quote, the disconnect between valuations for innovative companies and the public versus private markets is as wide as I have ever seen. The arbitrage opportunity is enormous. And so I'll just ask you, Gene, do you agree? I mean, are innovative public companies undervalued and, and private companies overvalued, if we can just paint with a broad brush? Yeah, I, I have a lot of respect for Kathy, what she's built. I have different views, and this is something where I have a different view from her. As I mentioned, we are active in both the public and private space, and we have not been as active recently in the private space, just given the valuations. And so understand uh, the perspective that the public markets have it wrong. Unfortunately, is that uh, with that view, the reason why I think that the public markets, at least in the near term, have it right, is that the private uh, goal of a, a company is not to be private in a perpetuity. It is to have a handoff ultimately to the public markets. And so the the true judge of valuation is going to be the public markets. Now, the pendulum is is shifted too far in the conservative uh, case. That is that is true uh, on some of these public ones. But I think that just broad stroke here is I think that still some of these uh, private companies, especially the late stage companies, the valuations that we're looking at, it still is uh, remarkable. The kind of valuations that these companies are getting, even in the environment, in the last couple of months near its uh, all-time highs, uh, what these companies are being valued at, when we have some of their peers, which have made the public markets, are down from uh, SPAC price, they're down 60%. Gene, I mentioned uh, Kathy Wood and ARK Invest. I'm guessing that you occasionally get the question on how uh, your index compares to their strategies, right? I think when many investors think about disruptive tech ETFs, Obviously, ARC's done a, a nice job of branding themselves in this space. Are there similarities with your approach uh, with, with the Loop Frontier Tech Index? Uh, what's similar is we both believe in tech. We both believe that it is going to fundamentally change, and we, we both believe that there is real wealth, long-term wealth creation around that. And where we differ is our sensitivity to valuation. If you just want to look at this, fairly the overlap between what we're doing and what uh, ARKK is. There's three companies that overlap between the two indexes. So that's about 10%. So we have about a 10%. Um, so we do have, uh, we tend to be in smaller companies relative to ARK. Um, if you're curious, uh, relative to QQQ, we also have a 10% overlap. And so we, what we did not want to do is create an index that uh, essentially mirrored what ARK was doing or the Qs. We wanted to create something that provided the upside uh, around tech, but didn't uh, mirror the same performance. Gene, only about a minute left. Uh, it, it just dawned on me, my previous two guests, I, I closed with a Bitcoin-related question, crypto-related question. So I'm going to do the same with you. And I know uh, this is a topic you and I could spend hours chatting about. A minute definitely doesn't do it justice. But can you just offer your quick take uh, on this space? I mean, there's so much capital being invested into to crypto and, and NFTs and blockchain technology. I feel like there's a tremendous talent flow into this space. Just high, high level, what are you seeing right now in terms of deals, you know, startups, innovation. How hot is this area right now? Uh, it, it's it's hot. I, I think that there's going to be a cooling effect, and I'm going to go quickly here. A cooling effect, at least probably in the the near term. I do believe um, that those are considered some of the most risky of assets when or risky of investments. Uh, and so, because of that, when you think about the risk profile of the market, they end up getting uh, more impacted, both positively and negatively. I do believe that from a macro perspective, we're focused on rates and the Ukraine. I think we're missing the A topic. The A topic is, of course, what's going to happen in, in Taiwan. And I think that the market hasn't even scratched the surface there. So to answer your question, that those, all those platforms were big believers in, in, in uh, crypto. 
but I think that there needs to be some cooling off here, at least in the near term, as the market reassesses what these geopolitical impacts are. And I think that there's more risk to some of these in the near term based on that. Well, Jane, just a, a real pleasure connecting this week. Uh, really enjoyed hearing your perspective on the markets and, and disruptive tech. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. That was Jane Munster, co-founder of Loop Funds. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Exchange and ETF Experience. If you would like to attend this world-class ETF conference, which I'll be there, it's April 11th through 14th in Miami Beach, visit exchangeetf.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Zhang Bui, head of U.S. exchange-traded products at NASDAQ. We're going to go around the horn on a number of ETF topics. And then Kevin Kelly, founder and CEO of Kelly ETFs, will spotlight their new lineup of ETFs, including the Kelly Residential and Apartment Real Estate ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.